As well as recording two podcasts a month, Andrea and I also sit down together once a month to catch up on what's been happening in our own food worlds. We record these chats especially for our patrons, the people that are part of our podcast community. As our episodes this month are all about bringing you closer, we thought we'd share one of these recordings with all our listeners. So coming up, you've got Andrea and I, tea in hand, sharing, laughing and learning together. In this episode, you'll hear me talking about my wet rendering fat experiment, the how, the results and the pros and cons of this method. You'll hear Andrea's take on the diaries of Nella Last and the food gems she found in her World War I and II writings. You'll hear a hilarious discussion on the many ways to cook eggs, including my UK-based expertise on soft-boiled eggs and soldiers. You'll hear about the book I consider the best read on historical English food I've ever come across. And you'll hear Andrea quiz me on the technicalities of the English cup of tea. If you love this episode and want more, check out our community over at patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast. All the details are in the show notes. For now, join us at the table as we dive in. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello, Alison. Hi, Andrea. How are you today? Good. How are you? I feel like that sounded kind of aggressive. Hello, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. I'm here. <laughs> oh, how's it I've going got, over there? <laughs> I've, I've got the, the book up on my screen that we're going to talk about oh. a bit later on. And it's got a picture of an egg in an egg cup with a woolly hat over the top of it. <laughs> it's making me laugh. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, <sighs> I'm going to move the microphone real quick, just if there's a funny sound. So I know you said it's raining over there this morning, which is nice. You guys are getting some hydration. Um, Have you eaten um, lunch today? Yes. Yes, I have. It was very, very nice. I did some pork mints from my farmer, Flavio, in the cast iron pan. I kind of have this improvisational process for putting ground meat into the cast iron pan and making a one pot dish out of it, which um, is the process that I sent to you that's going to go in our forthcoming cookbook at some point in the future when we bring that out. So I had pork mints with onion and um, what else did I put in? Cabbage and some greens and some tomato paste and garlic. It was quite tomato and a little bit of stock that was left. Cooked that all, lots of onion. And then I put it inside a sourdough rye pancake. Um, Two days ago I filmed the last... I filmed the last videos for my sourdough rye course and I had a kind of a, a buffet oh, of all the things that were in the course in front of me on the camera, you know, so you could see the, the two different breads. And, and one of the things I show in the course is, is sourdough pancakes in the kind of how to use your discard section. And so I had all of this rye stuff that was out and cooked that I filmed two days ago. So we had a stack of rye pancakes in the fridge so Gable's been eating them in his lunch and for breakfast. And I heated one of those up and put all the ground pork, tomatoey ground pork inside, folded it over, put some sauerkraut in, and um, had that with a glass of kefir, water kefir, that um, Gable, I'm trying to train Gable to make water kefir, and he's very generous with the, with the second <laughs> ferment flavourings. <laughs> and so he put lots of fennel in it. It was absolutely delicious, loads of fennel seed. So I had a a fennel seed flavoured water kefir with it. It was delicious. Delicious. How about you? Did you have breakfast? Oh, man, that sounds so good. I did, actually. I had um, some black rosehip, like rosehip and black tea combo Mm -hmm. with some raw cream and a little bit of honey from my friend Kiri. I Mm -hmm. had 
some leftover, I guess I'll call it jello salad. I'm not sure really what to call mm -hmm. it um, from the 4th of July barbecue thing. What's jello you know, salad? Barbecue, but, so, well, jello is a brand of gelatin that came out in the 50s, um, okay. like flavored, and it's, you know, basically made out of dye and sugar. <laughs> <laughs> um, all those lovely so, things. <laughs> <laughs> all the best. So I made kind of, I guess you would call it like an approximation of it, where I mm. blended frozen strawberries and um, I heated some gelatin in water and um, I made some whipped cream, some raw cream, and it kind of mixed everything together. And then I stirred in a bunch of blueberries and let it sit in the fridge so it got kind of firm. Um, so... It was okay. really good, actually. Um, it's, it's so we call that jelly in England, not jello. Oh, jelly. jelly. Yeah, you're right. Mm. I, I noticed Kitty Bloomfield is always like, look, you can make, have a jelly cube. I'm like, yeah, ew, gross. Go. Who wants to eat jelly? Oh, you mean yeah. jello. <laughs> yeah. So you had that for breakfast? Yeah, I had that. And then wow. I had, nice. um, I heated up a little bit of turkey broth because we cooked a turkey for the 4th of July, which might sound weird, but... Um, Usually people do hot dogs and hamburgers, but I okay. cooked a whole turkey and then I took all the meat off of it and shredded the meat and I made a big batch of barbecue sauce and then I mixed the shredded turkey with the barbecue sauce Yum. and made like a pulled turkey and we had it on buns with um, homemade coleslaw and stuff. But Delicious. I had some of the broth and then of course mm. I had two poached eggs in it. So <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it was perfect. Sounds delicious. Perfect breakfast. So. Nice. so I can do this all day long, Alice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, <Okay>. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I jumped right into food and I forgot that um, yeah. we had a little housekeeping to do. So let's catch up on the um, yeah. podcast. Well, deets. I actually remembered to um, make a note of the new patrons who we haven't mentioned since the last time we mentioned the new patrons. <laughs> Yay, success. So I have a list here because we've had quite a lot of patrons come on in the last kind of month, six weeks, which is very exciting and feels really good. So I wanted to give a shout out to um, Carissa. I think yes. that's Carissa's name. She's Ancestral Living and Nutrition on Instagram. And Angie, Angie Snyder, um, Rebecca oh, Zapp, nice. who's a humble place and she's come on at our one of our new levels which is the five dollar kind of sponsorship level our entry level whereas carissa and angie are both on the companionship level which is twelve dollars mm -hmm. we've got claire dumont who's also a companion kyle smith who's on our sponsorship level diana newoulis i think i've probably mispronounced that but I tried she's on our <laughs> companionship level and Izzy Dasty again another companion so welcome to all of you and thank you ever so much for supporting us and we hope you're enjoying all the goodies that we're putting out um on the private feed yeah. and also on the treasure trove and mm -hmm. enjoying the discord conversations that we're having as well it's wonderful yeah. to have such support. You and me learning Discord has to be fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Whoops>. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, that's, We're that's there, really guys. good. And you've got something to read as well, haven't you? I do. And also I wanted to shout out Rebecca. You mentioned her, A Humble Place. Mm. She's also kind of being my um, side consultant. <laughs> I keep asking her questions because she has experience in the in this real food world. So I'm like, hey, what do you think about? <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, is it Deanna or Diana? I'm so embarrassed now I'm saying it and I realized I like, hello, we voice memo constantly. And I realized I have not asked her. In my head, I say it, Diana, but I don't know. I could be wrong. So she's honey and chamomileon <laughs> i think i said it right on instagram she said the last two episodes uh, she said this to allison i should say the last two episodes you and andrea produced i mean all of them really have resonated deeply i was reflecting this morning on how much my life inside the kitchen and in turn outside has changed due to the influence you two provide i don't feel the pressure to replicate your lifestyles but rather encouraged to find my path to reach a similar destination. What I'm saying is your work truly inspires creativity. 
As someone who has struggled with my relationship with food and weight, there is a comfort in knowing I'm not alone and there is community in recovery. I stand with you. Thank you for your vulnerability and sharing your wisdom. Oh my gosh. I love that. Wow. So much. So much. Yeah. It, it, it's incredibly powerful to read words like that. So thank you. I know. I just very get chills much reading that. For taking like, the time to write them. I, yeah. I, I, uh, like, I could have written that. You know, I feel like I've gone on that. I'm on that journey, you know. And it's, ah, oh, man, it just, it makes me so happy to think that, okay, it's exactly what we wanted, Alice. And you remember when we said there has yeah. to be other people out there thinking the same way as we are. We can't be the only ones. And and here they are. Like, this is yeah. amazing. And joyful amazing. sharing together. It's, mm-hmm. it's wonderful. Really wonderful. Thank you. Thank yeah. you to everyone who's listening that and just, supporting us. That puts like the fire the fire under me like yes keep yeah. doing it <laughs> keep getting up at 5 a.m to record <laughs> yes you early bird <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway i love i love that note i love chatting with her she's yeah. got an amazing farm and um she's super super encouraging so thank you to anybody everybody all of you who send in messages we really appreciate it yeah completely so what's on the table for today? Well, I, okay, you posted about wet rendering lard and I know yeah. a lot of us have questions about that. So I'm going to make you talk about that. <laughs> okay, we'll start, we'll start with the wet rendering then. So I render my own lard and tallow here, but up until like a week ago, 10 days ago, I'd always done it in the slow cooker, chop the fat up, put it on low, put the lid on, don't put anything else in, leave it every three or so hours, maybe two hours, pour the Uh contents of the entire slow cooker through a sieve, the fat goes into the bottom, into a metal bowl, leave it to set slightly, pour it into a container, put it in the fridge. And that goes on for like eight hours. I guess that's called the dry method because there's no water involved, but that's always how I've done Hmm. my fat rendering. Hmm. And often people have said to me, oh, but, but don't you get impurities? And, and what about the smell? And and I kind of generally think, well, I'm not that bothered because we eat it fast. So it's never gone mouldy or anything. Um, and I don't mind the smell. But I know some people do. And I know also that um, lard and tallow historically haven't just been used for um, food and eating like we use for our lard they've also been used for making things you know making soap making creams putting on the body and smelling like lard or smelling like tallow isn't that attractive (laughs) (laughs) to um (laughs) certainly to to rob at my end I'm not sure to a pig or to a cow it might be nice but um so I then stumbled across um our friend and I'm going to try and pronounce her her name rightly here Jimena um Mm -hmm. who has a account on Instagram called the functional force I think and she was showing herself doing this thing called wet rendering and I was like what's that we should put salt in with it and she should put in water how does that work so I talked to her about it and she said basically it's really good for getting your fat really really pure the salt helps pull out impurities and it's also good to stop it smelling. So if you want to have a very clear, very pure, very odour-free fat, try this way. So I finally managed to get my hands on some beef fat. Up until now, I've only been happy to get um, pig fat. I haven't been able to find a source of beef fat that I was happy with, but we found a new farm that are biodynamic and grass feed and they were happy to sell me some beef fat for hardly any money at all so I thought okay let's give this wet rendering a go so basically what I did was chopped up the beef fat into kind of squares maybe two centimeters across and put it in the slow cooker and then I added quite a lot of water maybe two quarts of water two litres, and kind of a handful and a half of salt, and I turned it on, and I left it, and I watched the bits of fat get smaller and smaller and smaller, and when they got very, very small, and it looked like there really wasn't any 
more fat to come out of them. They kind of look like the cracklings sort of size that I'm used to. I strained through a sieve lined with muslin into a metal um, bowl. And then I left that to set and I put it in the fridge overnight. So then what happened was the fat stayed at the top and the water that had been in the liquid went to the bottom and it was salty, very salty water. In the morning, then I, I cut that tallow out of the bowl. It's quite hard to get it out. Um, uh-huh. I think if you have like a silicon bowl or a bendy bowl, it'd be easier because you just pull the sides, but I don't have one of those. Oh, um, yeah. So I had to use my knife and kind of get it down the side. The first bit was quite hard to get out, but I got all that out and underneath was all the salty water which I threw away. And then when I turned the tallow upside down, I could see that on the bottom of it, where where it had been sort of in contact with the water, there was, on some of the bits, there was like a, a brown kind of patch. And that's more impurities. So I scraped those bits off with a knife and put them to one side. And then I put all the tallow that I just cut out back into the slow cooker for day two. And I put in a load more water and a load more salt. And I left it for maybe three or four hours boiling, just to, you know, just that simmer, kind of very, very light um, boil. And then after that, I did the same thing again. I poured it through a muslin lined sieve into a metal bowl, let it set, put it in the fridge. Day three, <laughs> the next morning, I got it out again, turned it over. And there was less brown on the bottom, a little bit, and I scraped it off. And then I had my tallow through the waterway again. Um, And it was basically odourless. It doesn't smell as strongly as tallow that I've made in the past. And it's much, much finer and clearer. I mean, it just looks like fat. There's no bits of kind of random sort of cracklings or bits, you know, like when when you mend a fat, you often get little bits in it if you don't put it through muslin. And so I've now got two kilos from five kilos of fat. I've got two from five kilos of the cow fat, the beef fat. I've got two kilos of tallow, which I cut into kind of about 300 gram, 350 gram portions. Some of them are frozen. Some of them I've put in the fridge. And hopefully I'm going to use it to make something to put on my skin. Some of it. I've been using it to cook and it tastes amazing. The last time I made tallow was in England with some beef fat I got in Cornwall. And I never used to like it. I didn't like the taste of it. I didn't like the smell of it. I didn't like to use it. And the boys ate it. I just stuck with the lard. This tallow, I absolutely love. And I don't know whether it's the different cows, the different way they've been raised, the different processing. I'm not sure. But it vies for being as nice for me to have in my... um, you know, when I'm frying, as the flavour mm-hmm. of lard. It's it's wow. really, really good. Really cheap. Um, I did put on Instagram how much it cost, but it was... Uh, I compared it to how much we pay for butter at the moment. And our butter, I think my butter worked out at 12, about 12 euros a kilo, maybe slightly more than that. And this worked out at about two, three euros a kilo. And it's just the most amazing, great fat. And then hopefully I might be able to use some of it to, yeah, to put on my skin. Um, I was talking again to Jimena, who was telling me she makes a solid bar of tallow mixed with some beeswax and she puts it next to her soap in the kitchen. So every time she washes uh-huh, her hands, yeah. afterwards she just kind of rubs her hands on that bar and it gives a coating of the fat on her hands. I was rubbing it into my hands as I was making the tallow, actually, as I was rendering it, because there was bits kind of on my hands and... It's a bit spilt on the side. And, um, yeah, so that's it's just really exciting. I explored the wet render, and I would say, I was kind of thinking, what were the pros and the cons? It's longer. It's much, much longer to wet render because it's over three days, whereas when I do my normal rendering, it's over one day. So you've got to be more patient. You've also got to wash up the things in between day one and day two, so it's more work there as well. The other downer is that you can't eat the cracklings because they're too salty because they've had all the mm. salt in the water. So I tried mm. eating some of the cracklings. I was like, oh, we can't eat those. That's way too much salt. <laughs> like, oh, no. Whereas when I do it without salt, obviously I can eat the cracklings. But the upsides are that it, it's such high quality fat 
and it will last right, right. forever because it's got none of these impurities in it. You know, mm-hmm. if you leave lard for a long time, if it's got bits of impurities in it, it's more likely to go mouldy or go off, smell a bit funny. Whereas because this is so pure, it will last so much longer for me, even if I didn't you know, put it in the fridge or put it in the freezer. And I can, I can use it on my body as well. So exciting. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to try it. When I saw your post, I was thinking, oh, this is awesome. Because um, Tiffany and I were talking about when we rendered tallow and lard and some of the jars got like this mm. black kind of mold on the side yeah. and some didn't. And you're like, okay, but everything was sterilized. Everything was boiled. Everything was yeah. clean. You know, it was in the dark and all these things. And um some of it is perfectly fine. I have a jar of tallow that I think I've had for like four years and it's perfectly fine. And then there's mm. um, another one that, you know, molded in, you know, four months. So it's like, what gives? So mm. we've looked online at everything, you know, like, and everybody's like, oh, make sure your jars are clean. And like, well, they were, mm. you know, but I'm, I'm excited to try the wet rendering because we were thinking maybe if there was any more impurities that were causing that, then yeah. this would... Are you leaving your fats like that at room temperature or in the fridge? Um, so ideally, I would like to drop it all into the freezer. Um, yeah, we just okay. didn't have the room for it. So I see. some of it's in the freezer. Um, some of it I put on the shelf, and theoretically, it should be fine on the shelf if it's clean. Yeah. But um, some of them didn't. Some of them did. So, mm. so anyways, um, lesson learned. But yeah. um, I do have a lot of tallow and lard to render, and I need to finish working my way through one freezer so that we're ready for these chickens when we butcher. So, Okay. Well, well let me know how it goes. I'd be really interested yeah. to see if you leave a jar yeah. out, whether there is a difference and, it, and mm-hmm. it doesn't mold. Because we've had, I mean, in the past we've had, not lard we've rendered ourselves, but lard we've bought, um, which has actually molded in the fridge on the bottom of the container yeah we yeah, never had any of our own of lard too. yeah mm, none of our old lard is molded our own lard is huh. molded um but i think i keep it in the fridge and also it doesn't last very long because we eat it <laughs> you know right. so it doesn't hang around very long um what i would but, like to be able mm. oh sorry <laughs> no go on you go I, I would like to be able to render a large quantity at a time because it is, you know, it can be kind of messy and whatever. And I just think I'd yeah. rather do 20 jars at a time than do one jar 20 times. Yeah, completely. So, yeah, yeah. I wished that I'd had a larger um, slow cooker. When we were in England, we had two slow cookers. Mm. We had a normal size one that I think does like six or eight portions. I can't remember how many litres it was. And we had a huge one that did like 12, 15 portions. And uh, another whole long story, we had a calamity when we moved and we had to lose about two thirds of our possessions, including the slow cookers. Um, So we only bought a small one back. And this could have really done with a large one. Um, I just about got the five kilos in it of fat. And I said, I got two kilos of tallow out of it. I, that will go, I know, I could have done double that for sure, you know, so maybe one day I'll get a big slow cooker again, because like you said, it's so much easier, because it does make a mess, and you do have to wash up, and it takes a lot of effort, and it's really good to be able to batch these things, as we talk about, you know, batching food, so you've got breakfast for a week, or lunches for a week, it's good to be able to batch these things, and just get it done once and then it it lasts and lasts and lasts so yeah hmm yeah no i'm excited about this this will be good well Perfect let me know how it goes. goes yeah i will yeah excellent excellent i like that i'm i'm efficient and useful <laughs> <laughs> did you know we have a patreon for the listeners of the ancestral kitchen podcast that's right can't get enough of this well there's more of it over on the patreon feed just waiting for you we have a variety of levels to choose from and a bunch of different benefits to enjoy your sponsorship keeps the podcast on the air ad free and helps us keep buying books to read and talk about on the podcast and also helps allison buy bizarre ingredients at the farmer's market so she can ferment them and tell us about them later check us out at patreon.com slash ancestral kitchen podcast
So you've been reading and I want to hear about the book that you've yeah. been reading because I think it's it's um, potentially got more connection to this side of the pond than your side of the yeah, pond. I think it does. <laughs> um, so Atlee, who um, is a part of the Literary Life group, had mentioned these books. And as soon as he mentioned them, I was like, well, I guess I'm buying those. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's this woman named Nella Last. And mm -hmm. she kept extensive diaries during World War II in England and through the 50s. Um, there's three books published out of her diaries. They're not even complete. I guess nobody's ever even read all of it. There's so much. She wrote wow. an insane amount. And she also wrote copious amounts of letters during that time. So she was very prolific. Um, there's Nella Last's War. Nella Last's mm. piece, and the third book is upstairs. I think it's called Nella Last in the 50s or something. Okay. So I finished Nella Last's War, and I'm halfway through Nella Last's piece, and I'm just smitten by all the mentions of food all over mm. this book. And I kept um, marking pages thinking, I need to tell Allison this. I need to talk to Allison. <laughs> like, you're in my head so much whenever I'm reading. Um, so... Hang on, I'm I'm gonna turn away from the mic for a second so I can try mm -hmm. and find the page that I want. Yeah, um, no, do. I marked so many pages. It's like, where do I begin? I thought, you know, um, I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this passage that I was thinking about posting on Instagram. Um, this isn't food per se, but I feel like you know when we talked about you remember the sparks of life coming from the woman's fingers uh, yeah, as she prepares yeah. the food and stuff. This kind quote. of echoed that back to me. She said. Um, she, so she contemplates a lot in her, in her diary about, um, you know, how she, her son was born during World War One, and, you know, and so she's thinking, we just went through a war and now we're doing this all over again. Mm. And we thought that was the last one. And, um, you know, why, why are kids being raised just to go out and get shot and all this? So she says, what chance has youth? If they have no background, no anchorage, no feeling that there is a wee spot all their own. I feel sometimes I want to shout loudly to all mothers and tell them how important they are, how much more they matter than all the preaching, talking men who think only in terms of organization. Look at the Hitler youth and Mussolini's poor moppets. Mm. Where have they landed and landed the world? I want to cry, mothers, unite, let's all be old-fashioned. After all, babies and little ones are the oldest fashioned thing there is. Let's give them background, teach them simple rules of life, mentally and spiritually, love them a lot, and then stand aside. Why, we would make a new world in two short generations and wipe out bitter memories, make racial hatreds perish, and better than a man or men ever could. Gosh. Wow. Ooh, I just love that. <laughs> I, I feel like I can't imagine what it must have been like to mm -hmm. try to live in those in that period let alone to bring children into the world when you saw what was happening to the you know children as young as like 17 going to the front mm -hmm. and um yeah that sort of emotion must have swelled in so many women's um, breasts Absolutely. you know wanting to get it out yes. um and she says it so well mm -hmm. there's so many women who were just like, we're over this. Why, why, why send mm. them out again? So probably everybody knows that there was extensive rationing during the war. Mm. Um, there just wasn't, you know, there, everybody's seen, you know, the coupons or points or um, stamps, different things people had to sort of make sure that you had your allotment, as it were, no more, no less, or well, often less, but no more than that. Mm. Um, so there could theoretically be enough to go around during times of shortage. So she talks a lot about cooking under those restrictions. And mm. she's extremely creative. And her husband says she, <laughs> she always kind of has a grudge against her husband throughout the book. Um, but she says somewhere how he says, well, we haven't really suffered any shortages. And she's like, well, that's what you think. <laughs> it's just yeah. because I'm so creative that the food, <laughs> wow. the food hits the table and looks so good. And, um, and, and she's always comes up with um, like there's one scene 
where she made a sauce for something and she didn't have cream. So she made like a water syrup or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so she says, I just put it on the table. I knew if I told them we didn't have what I wanted, then everybody would have complained, but I just put it on the table. And, and then, uh, and then I said, Oh, I just, I felt like doing a syrup today. That seemed better. And, um, (laughs) And everybody was like, oh, yeah, that's that's better than the cream one. That was better than it. Wow. <laughs> it's just funny little vignettes like that all throughout the book. Um, so she, she talks about um, – so I, I was thinking it would be almost fun to write like Nella Last cookbook because sometimes she tells yeah. exactly how to she made things. Pull the recipes out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm flipping through a couple of my Allison Marks um, mm. To get to one of the food ones, I think uh, while you're while you're looking, <laughs> I think it's um it's interesting. I had when I interviewed Charlie, the lady who cooked ancestry in the van for a couple of years. It we had a quite a a discussion on how restriction enhances creativity, um, and one hundred percent agree. I can imagine you know the the rationing in the states was slightly different to the rationing in the UK, but you know the same kind of foodstuffs were um restricted and having that in your kitchen you have to look for ways to create something you know if you have pride in what you're doing and you want to feed your family well um uh-huh. and it it seems counterintuitive because you'd think well I could have all the stuff in the world and I could be so mm-hmm, creative mm-hmm, but it works the mm-hmm. other way it really does it 100% does actually I thought that for the 4th of July because um I thought okay, I can either go to the store and I can get some things to make this meal or I can just see what I can come up with in the yeah. house. And Excellent. so I came up with, I didn't, the only thing I didn't make was I wanted to make buns to put the shredded meat on and mm-hmm. just didn't, we, for two days it rained before the fourth and I couldn't, I didn't want to run um, the generator. So mom brought some store-bought buns. They were, mm-hmm. they were good. They're from a local place that she gets them from. But um I felt like I told Gary, I said, I always feel so much more creative when I just yeah. have to look through what I have and come up with something. And I, yeah. I often, I come up with way more meals than if you sent me to the store. Well, not often, always. I come up with 60 things I could make out of nourishing traditions or something versus mm-hmm. if you sent me to the store, I would just stand there paralyzed with like no idea what to do. Like I could do anything. This is impossible to choose. It's how we learn as okay. well as, as, as chefs, uh-huh. you know, in the kitchen, as cooks, yeah. just um, yeah. putting things together and seeing what happens. Okay, what exactly. else you got for me? So she wrote this on March 4th, 1942. And it's just a sample of kind of how she describes. She, she does this a lot. I made tomorrow's lunch by the fire and put it in two dishes ready for heating. I cut my quarter of beef up small and lightly fried it with a cut-up leek, added a carrot and a slice of turnip, diced and simmered it all very slowly for two hours. Then I added sliced potatoes and seasoning and cooked till all the liquid was absorbed. I had soaked dried peas in the pantry, so I added them with the potatoes, and if look and smell are anything to go by, it's a very good lunch. For Mm. tea, I made thick wholemeal toast, and when it was done, put on a layer of sliced cheese with a dusting of cayenne pepper and cooked it under the grill till it was frothy and golden. Mm. Wow. So sounds, just really, some of that sounds so English, the turnips. So simple. Um, a lot of the foods are like that, um, simple ones, and a lot of them are even simpler than that. Um, but it always sounds really good. And something I always note is how their meals are very simple. Like she'll say, you know, today, because she worked at the canteen, so she'd say, today we made them toast with smashed sardines, or today we made toast with cheese on it and tea, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that was their meal. It was just something really simple, not these hyper-complex Pinterest yeah. <laughs> kind of meals. And I sent you that picture um, from the the cookbook from the U.S. side of war. Yes. The rye bread yeah, yeah, yeah. meatloaf or whatever. That's and, sage ready to make. Yeah. And that book was kind of similar in terms of um, here's what was 
kind of being rationed was not nearly as restrictive, or at least I get the impression it wasn't as restrictive over here as it was over there. But, um, you know, still simplified recipes and you, there wasn't lots of, you know, butter and sugar to go around or anything like that. Mm. And this is also mm. where a lot of our fake like margarines and stuff came in. But it is interesting looking at those books because you had just, we had just started this real factory food mm. sort of, you know, mentality was coming in and then the war um, the Second World War really amplified it because now you had to have lots of tinned, canned, yeah. preserved, dried, you know, food to send overseas with, you know, troops. And um, just, I don't know, a, a lot of factor and industrial food came came to the fore, forefront during and because of the war. And she says <laughs> bitterly, as I think many of us feel um, multiple times throughout the book, you know, how, well, war's making somebody money somewhere. Mm. Um, meanwhile, all the mothers are just at home watching their sons one after another march off and get killed. So, yeah, just a fascinating book seeing what wow. it's like and she she also has a little bitterness towards america i noticed in the second <laughs> book she says i wish america should have had at least a few bombs dropped on them so they could she's like they didn't nothing happened to them and they're still rich and they're they've got all this money and um you know whatever they they don't really know what it's like you know um so she had some you know i mean she lived in a town that was um, bombed during the blitz constantly so gosh you know I yeah uh, so I understand I, what I, angst. <laughs> I I can completely kind of see how subsequent generations who were mothered and grandmothered by that generation the changes that must have been passed on through the different mm -hmm. emotions that those women had to live through you can see how previous generations it, it's in our tissues you know it's in us what happened to them right yeah because 100 they passed that on to us you know whether we were whether they were kind of you know raising families or or had babies in their wombs it's all passed on and it's um it's scary really scary well since I, um, we mm. since we're carried by our grandmothers yeah you know um we're not even a generation removed from that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like we're right there. Yeah. So I am, um, I remember as two things I wanted to say, the first one was that how wonderful the cooking of offal was during the war, because I think offal was never rationed in the UK. I seem to remember mm. I did quite a lot of research on rationing about a year ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I wish we could bring back the awful recipes. And secondly, um, I listened to, I think it was a BBC Food Chain, which is a programme from the BBC World Service um, about rationing. And three women who took rationing and actually did it, took rationing from World War II and did it, um, you know, in like last year in their lives and how it's always been kind of said that Britons were the healthiest that they've ever been after the rationing mm. during the war. Mm. And these three women, one of them who was quite seriously overweight, took the rationing and made it part of their lives and tried, you know, they had to be creative in the kitchen like Nella was being. They had to relearn things. They they kind of lived through it. And it was absolutely fascinating to hear their reflections on how they cooked, but also how it changed them afterwards, you know, going back in and seeing all the the plenty and the abundance and the mm. the crazy kind of commercialism we have around food today, it it really had an effect on them to to actually yeah. have to live like that. It was a fascinating program. Yeah. What podcast was that? That was I think it was it's called The Food Chain. 
There are two couple. The there are two BBC chain. podcasts I like. One's the Food Programme, which is on BBC Radio Four, and that's a podcast as well. And um, Dan Saladino presents that one quite often. The guy who um, I love his oh, work, yeah. and I'm reading his book at the moment. Um, and then there's another one called the Food Chain, which is on the World Service, the BBC World Service. But that's also a podcast. So both of them you can subscribe to, and oh. I do as podcasts and um they've got an archive going back for years and years and years so you can find you know if you want to podcast about something you'll find something in that archive for sure um they're great podcasts so you uh okay question before Mm. we move on to the next topic um just just this is just a like british question (laughs) oh dear i'm on the the hot seat now (laughs) so in in this book and everywhere everybody always refers to tea like oh Mm. we're gonna have tea Mm. um can you tell me how where is where where is tea in the higher because tea i'm is like a meal it looks to me like they're like oh we had um bread and toast and Mm. and a cake and a salad for tea and i'm like what so yeah can you, okay. can you I can try and explain to you what tea is. <laughs> so tea, there, there are various names for meals in the UK. So breakfast is breakfast. I don't know another name for that. But then you have lunch and you have dinner and you have tea and potentially you have supper as well. I don't think there are any more than that. Um, supper wasn't really ever used when I was growing up. Um, lunch generally refers to, in my world anyway, a light meal had at around noon, one in the afternoon, something like that. Dinner, there's a social kind of class around these words, which is in a whole other discussion. But dinner generally can refer to either an evening meal, that is quite big. So if you've gone out to work and you've had a lunch, a sandwich at work, then you come home and you have your dinner. And in England, that's generally like five, six o'clock. Whereas in Italy, it's like, eight, nine o'clock, depending on the time of year. Wow. And um, some people do interchange the word dinner and say dinner for the lunchtime meal, particularly if it's a heavier meal. Um, tea, generally, I think in my past, that goes with when you've had a big dinner. So say it's a Sunday and traditionally in England on a Sunday, you have a roast dinner. See, I said the word dinner because it's a heavy dinner and it's served around lunch, 12, like, 1, like, 2 o'clock. Okay, midday. Yeah. Okay. So midday on a Sunday, the traditional English food is a roast. So when you've had your roast and you've had a dessert, you're stuffed and you don't necessarily want that much in the evening. Uh-huh. And that's where tea comes in, in certainly the place where kind of I, how I grew up. And tea is usually kind of something lighter maybe with a cup of tea, some sandwiches, a bit of um, a cake or something like that. So that's how it's used. But it's also another term for tea, which is kind of like a high tea. So if you go to some of the hotels in London, um, like the Ritz, um, you can go there and you can have tea, afternoon tea. And it's something that you can take. Take is the verb. You don't eat it, you take it. You take tea (laughs) and you go to the hotel. I've done it twice I think um in my past and you can go anytime in the afternoon so like three four five and you go there and everything's set out and there are cakes on uh, you know like a three-tiered cake stand and there are kind of cakes they bring you sandwiches on a cake stand first cucumber sandwiches you know with the crusts cut off and salmon and stuff in them um and you eat your sandwiches first you have a tea with proper teapot proper you know china tea with a thing not a great big mug like I drink my tea here um and then you have sweet so you have the same kind of three tier um cake thing come and it's got scones in it with clotted cream wow. and jam it's got um kind of madeleines it's got all these other different biscuits and you sit there and people serve you and you've got all the china you've got all the everything so it's kind of a historically it's an upper class thing that we go and take tea together in the afternoon But the words have been taken and used by different classes in different ways. That's my take on it. I'm sure there's, if you read some history book, maybe the book that we're going to talk about in a minute might talk about the wording. Um, I haven't got to that bit yet, though. But, yeah, so tea is is like a a lighter meal with tea, usually has sandwiches and cakes. And it often 
it can either be a high tea thing or it often comes in my family it came at the weekend after a roast meal okay and do you do you (laughs) i feel like i have so many funny little questions that um if i just lived there for a year would all be answered you know what i mean but um does everybody has like a cup of tea like every day this is like everyday thing Mm. all the time Um, do you drink tea every day and is it like black tea I, I drink like, tea, but I don't drink caffeinated tea. But I'm I'm okay. I'm a weirdo. I'm not I'm not normal, right? <laughs> so, but they're drinking drink, actual like yeah. Camellia sinensis tea, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So okay. tea is a very very popular drink in England, and right. I mean coffee is popular now as well. And mm. and coffee has a long history. You know, we know from the history of food podcast talking yeah, about the coffee houses episode. in London. Um, yeah, but yeah. M- <laughs> Traditionally, I think maybe popularized in the Victorian and Edwardian eras, so like okay. 150, 100 years ago, um, people drink tea. People drink tea in the morning. They drink tea in the afternoon. They drink tea when they come out from come back from being out. They drink tea at funerals. Huh. They drink tea to sit down and talk <laughs> together. And it's generally yeah. normal, bog standard black tea with milk in it and often sugar. Milk in it, not cream. Yeah. No, no, not cream. Maybe in the past cream, but not not that yeah. I know of cream. And there's a, okay. it's kind of, it's the, it's the drinkers and masses. You know, there's kind of we have this saying uh-huh. of builders tea. Builders tea is oh. a bog standard um, English breakfast tea bag in a mug. Put in, you pour your milk in, you spoon your sugar in, and you know the builders sit down and have their tea. When it's their tea break at 11 o'clock. Huh. Um, so, yeah, tea, I mean, I'm just trying to think. I mean, in my past, my family drank more tea than coffee, for sure. And my my mum drinks coffee. My dad doesn't drink coffee so much. My gran, my grandparents drank tea. They didn't drink coffee at all. Uh-huh. They drank tea. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. coffee's, like, really a big, big deal over here. I guess it's our equivalent to tea. Mm. Because, like, if you go to, yeah, a funeral, we'll say there'll be carafes of coffee. There will uh, okay. probably be a carafe of hot water and some sort of neglected tea bags. But it's not really, like, <laughs> <laughs> just in case, I guess, Someone somebody wants shows up tea. who wants tea. <laughs> yeah, so I drink but tea, because but I it's drink... Not, it's not I ever very good tea. tea. Oh, yeah. 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 So no one has it. Yeah, nobody really wants it because it's not really good tea. Yeah. Um, at least that I ever see. Usually there's as many tea bags left in the end as there was when you started. Yeah, so but. when we used to have tea on a Sunday after we'd had a roast dinner, generally it was because my grandparents were over, um, we would have a big teapot in the middle of the table and my mum would put like four tea bags in it or three tea bags in it and everyone would have teacups and we'd sit around the table and there'd be sandwiches and sausage rolls and volivants and cake and everyone would have a cup of tea. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I kind of inferred. <laughs> I kind of inferred that from from you know things I've read, but it's always nice to hear somebody spell it out a little bit. There's lots of little uh, phrases or colloquialisms that she uses. That some of them they actually have a definition in the back of the book where you can look it up. Oh wow. But, yeah. For the most part, you can figure it out by context, as I'm sure you could. With yeah. things that I say that I don't realize, so. Or just, I come and ask you. That's what I do. Yeah, yeah, or I ask you. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> Which I so want to you... do. <laughs> Which I want to do now with my book. It's really interesting yeah. that you brought that yeah. book to the table because this... I know. I'm, I'm reading a book. Thank you, Charlie, for, again, the um, Ancestral Food in a Van lady. Go back and listen to her episode. Uh-huh. Recommended this book called Food in England, A Complete Guide to the Food That Makes Us Who We Are yeah. by Dorothy Hartley, who was a social historian who um, published this book in 1954. And it's the book she's most kind of lauded for, even though she wrote kind of other histories. She lived in Wales. And it is big, um, very big. Mm. And it has sections on, I've read the sections on kind of ovens and beef. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And 
just a couple of nights ago, I was reading the eggs. I started reading the eggs section. And it's like a complete like mirror over here. I was like, oh, I want to tell Andrea about this. I want to tell Andrea about this. <laughs> so there was all this stuff in this egg chapter that's, that's really simple. She's got recipes, but she just starts off by talking about the hens and, and the different times of year, which is a whole other discussion. But then she talks about how to cook eggs. So she's got, you know, boiled eggs, poached eggs, scrambled eggs, omelette. And there's some things in here that I'd never even heard of or thought about. And I, I just wanted to ask, you know, share some of them with you, see if you've heard yeah. about them yeah. and, and air it. So let's start with the boiled eggs. I've got this picture of this egg with a Let's. Bubbly, bubbly hat on in front of it. So she says that boiled eggs take three and a half minutes, but you can't cook newly laid eggs like this you can't boil them because the white hardens before the yolk is properly set I didn't know that at all but it does kind of sometimes I thought you know what I've had some eggs that I bought from the farmer's market and I've cooked them like I normally do boiling and the outside has seemed okay you know when I put my spoon in but then there's been a kind of a blobby bit around the yolk that's not cooked and I thought mm, maybe it's that so she says there's this process called um, where is it? Coddling. Coddle. You need to coddle the eggs. And I'd heard the term coddled before, but I'd not paid any attention to it. And what it is, is this is what you do for newly laid eggs, apparently. So you boil them for three and a half minutes. Okay. And then you take the pan off the heat and you leave it for five to six minutes in the kind of just off the boil water. And then she says, you can keep them like that in hot water for some time. They won't become hard. And it preserves the natural moisture that is in a newly laid egg. And I had never heard of that before. And you've got lots of experience with newly laid eggs. And oh. I wondered what, what you knew about it. Oh, well, yeah. Okay, so when we have fresh eggs, it is, it's hard to boil them and peel them. So are, the, are you, is this like those kind of eggs that you like, you know, you put it in an egg cup and eat it yeah, out of Yeah, she's talking about, she's not talking about peeling them at all. She's just talking about how you cook yeah. them. Well, that yeah, makes it's an sense, egg cut then. egg. That makes so. sense. Because, yeah, because they are pretty much impossible to peel when they're fresh. Yeah, so she's saying to have a boiled egg, which in England is, you know, a boiled egg in an egg cup, you take the top off, you put your soldiers, you dip okay. your bread soldiers in there. Um, your what? She's saying... <laughs> <laughs> so traditionally in England, if you have a boiled egg... A soft boiled egg. So in England, there are hard boiled eggs and soft boiled eggs. Soft boiled right. eggs means the yolk's still runny. Hard boiled eggs, the yolk's hard. With your soft okay. boiled egg, what you're supposed to have is soldiers, which is a bit of toast soldiers. with butter on it. So if you imagine a, square, a piece of toast, a square of toast, you then oh. cut it in half. So you've got two, two halves. And then you cut those okay. halves at a 90 degree angle to the cut you've just made. So you end up with long, thin bits of bread oh. <laughs> and you end up with about 10 of them. And they're called soldiers. And then you get one of those soldiers and you dip it in the yolk and the yolk goes all over it and then oh. you eat the bread. That's how you... Okay, I'm, I'm going to... Egg and soldiers. I'm, I got to do that. Okay, wait. And that... Okay, so is that not a coddled egg, a soft-boiled egg? No. No, no so she's saying a soft-boiled egg okay. is just you boil it for three and a half minutes and then you put it in your egg cup, you take the top off and you eat your soft-boiled egg. But then she's saying you can't do that with newly laid eggs because you'll end up with a yolk right. that's not cooked. So you need to do this thing where you leave them in the pan afterwards for five minutes and then you can leave them in the water for as long as you want because they'll, they won't go hard, I promise, and oh. they'll be all moistured retentive and lovely and i i've never cooked a newly laid egg differently and no one's ever told me anything about that and i didn't know yeah. and i wondered if you knew but it sounds like no, don't. I, I clearly didn't <laughs> nobody told me that i needed soldiers um don't okay i have a question about eating the egg out of the shell because this has hmm. always bothered me at like three o'clock in the morning and i'm laying there thinking about it don't you get like <laughs> chunks of shell in it yeah so i forget soft, soft boiled eggs aren't in a shells in in their cups aren't a thing in the states are they they're just uh... not people don't do it do they <laughs> like like we have egg cups and they're in pictures and cartoons <laughs> but nobody actually does it's it. a bit like you know there's a there's a comic over here called eddie izzard he's really funny and he said have you ever actually seen anyone 
like fall over on a banana skin. He says, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've, I've seen documentary footage of it. I've seen cartoons of it. I've seen this. He <laughs> says, yes, but the Nazis use propaganda. Have you actually <laughs> ever seen anyone slip on a banana skin in real life? Oh, right. So <laughs> you have air cups. But we no fully accept them. it as a motif. Like, we're <laughs> So soft boiled, what was the question? I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you get a bunch of eggshell in it? Like, wasn't oh, that yes, disgusting? that was the question. No. So what you do oh. is you put it in the egg cup and then there are two different methods. One is you take the back of a small spoon, a teaspoon, and you doff the top in like bash, 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 bash. So there's loads <laughs> and loads of cracks in it. Okay. And then you get a knife and you go in from the side at about a uh, centimetre or half centimetre down and you slice the top off. And because you've done that swiftly... And the top of the egg that you've taken off is in a thousand pieces, but huh? it still maintains the kind of the inner kind of membrane of the shell on the inside of it. Right. So if you're lucky, you can just peel right. that bit off. You do have to be careful, though, because sometimes the cut isn't clear and bits of shell do oh. come. Um, the other okay. method is to, to not bash it on the top a lot, just to cut, to cut the top off. Hmm. Um, yeah, you do sometimes get bits of shell. Um, I think but there's not an in every single bite. Do you, you don't no. really eat the whole egg then, right? Because oh yeah, um, you do. Yeah, you wait, do. what? Okay, so what? Okay, so you're dipping this little soldier in, and then so just, okay, <laughs> what you do? Allison, is, take me to when school. When you've separated I'm so the confused. top from the bottom, you've got this little top bit that you've hacked off. Then you get your spoon, okay. you hold it in your hand. Okay. Well, this is what we do anyway. You hold that bit in your hand. You get your spoon. And you separate like the white, yeah, just a little teaspoon. You okay. separate the white from the outside shell with a scoop. And then you've got a scoop of white from that tiny bit of top bit and you eat it. And then in your egg cup, you've got left 85% of the egg without the top. And you can see the yolk because you've cut into the yolk and you can see the white around it. And there might be a bit of a kind of jagged edge of um, eggshell around the side. And if there is, you can just perhaps get rid of a bit with your hand and then you just use your spoon or if you've got soldiers you dip your soldiers in you eat all the yolk with your soldiers then you get your spoon and you just go around the inside with a spoon and it comes away from the side and you scrape it all out and then if you're me you want to eat every part so you lift it up out of the egg cup and you're scraping with your spoon to make sure you get all of the, the bits out and and it's gone it's easy oh my gosh okay i'm getting i think i need to do your video don't i yeah, I think you need to make a reel for the Americans. <laughs> I, I do know there's people over here who, like, I think my sister has egg. I think they eat soft-boiled eggs in egg cups. But it's not super universal. So um, can you teach us, please? And now I just looked up egg cups online, and I guess mm. you can get them with, like, sets that come with egg cracker. Yeah, I don't use that. And the blazes and the spoon. Like, okay, it's like there's an industry out there yeah, yeah. making money on this. This yeah. is amazing. Okay, all right. Works so, fine. so eggs. So you you right. can't add anything to the soft boiled egg discussion. I think that's what we've established, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I can add nothing. <laughs> okay, let's let's right, move on to right. poached eggs then, because there's an interesting. Okay. What I wanted to say about poached eggs is what she says hmm. is there's a really kind of um, interesting way of cooking them. So, pretty much like you do in the stock. You know, you said for very often for breakfast, you poach your eggs in broth. And she's saying then you drain them and you can put them on toast. And then she suggests pouring the broth over the toast and making it go all kind of soft and gooey. And I thought that sounded really nice, kind of soft bread. Um, uh -huh. Even if it had uh -huh. butter on, then you pour the butter would melt. It'd go lovely. Um, there's an English dish called Welsh rabbit, which is cheese on toast under the grill. Is it that thing says, that looks like rare mm. bit? Yeah, that's right. Some people call it rare bit. Welsh rabbit. Rabbit. Okay. She calls it Welsh rabbit. Um, there's this other dish apparently called buck rabbit where you you have your cheese on toast and then you fry two bits of tomato and you put the poached egg inside the two bits of tomato and then you balance it on top of the cheese and on toast. Sounds like a bit of a, a plating disaster to me. It would all fall over. <laughs> but um, I thought that that, it sounded quite nice. Cheese on toast with yeah. an egg in between two bits of fried tomato. I wanted Gosh, to try that. That does sound nice. Um, what else does she say? So we, we, we're going through them. We're on to fried eggs now. And 
this is one thing she says about fried eggs is that you have to keep the fat boiling all the time that the egg is in the pan. Otherwise, you won't get a crispy bottom to your egg. And I really yeah. like crispy bottom on my egg. Do you eat do you eat your fried eggs with a crispy bottom? Okay, here's funny. Oh, wait, you said you do or you don't? I do. I like it like that. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Okay. So you and I both like the crispy bits, don't we? Mm. Like on everything. Mm. Um, yeah. And the crusty ends yeah. and stuff Crunchy. like that. Yeah. Um, Gary does not like that. He thinks it's disgusting when I make eggs with crispy. Really? And, and I'm like, oh, the little frilly brown edges. I'm like, that's yeah. what I live for. And he's just like, oh, that's disgusting. So he likes his eggs cooked. Um, not, not um, like that. Wait, were you saying something about poached eggs? Did we? What before? Yeah, we did. did. We, the poached eggs was the thing about the poaching the eggs in the broth and then putting them on toast oh. and putting the stock right. over them, or right. okay. poaching an egg and putting it in between the tomatoes and putting it on the cheese on okay. toast. Okay. That was her. That was her two right. cents on that. Was the poached? It wouldn't be two okay. cents. That was the pence. rabbit thing. Yeah, exactly. Huh. So you must cook Gary's mm. eggs in fat that's less hot in order. So this to is how not I do it. That. I do his eggs first. Yeah. I do his I eggs see. first, and then I do mine. Because yeah, I like, yeah, I like mine exactly like you said, way more crispy. And I love hearing that they cook the poached the eggs in broth because that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's what they did. That's what they did. Um, do you you have scrambled eggs in the states? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so she we're not calls total them... barbarians, Alison. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what egg is? <laughs> she calls them what scrambled <laughs> or rumbled eggs. I've never heard rumbled. of rumbled eggs. Yeah. Oh, I think I, like I might start using better. that instead of... Do I'm going to go do you with want that. Some rumbled eggs tonight? From now um, on, anyway. rumbled eggs. <laughs> we are going on somewhat. I want to move to the last way of cooking eggs in there, okay. which, which I want your input on, which is omelettes. Mm. Now, when I was a kid, my mum used to make omelettes differently to how I make them now. She used to separate the egg um, yolk and the egg white, and she used to put the egg white in a bowl and with a hand whisk, whisk it, whisk it, whisk it, until it had peaks. And then she used to fold the egg yolk back in to that so it's still really fluffy. And then she used to pour that into the pan and cook it. And then some, okay. somewhere along the line, I think when I left home, I must have read something else or seen something else. And I just started making omelettes by breaking eggs into a bowl, mushing them with a fork a little bit so they became, you know, yellow rather than white and yolk together. And then just pouring them in the pan. And I've always made my omelettes like that without actually doing something to the white beforehand to make it all fluffy and airy. And she, when I read this, she was like, this is how you do it. You separate them out, you whisk the egg white till it's a peak, and then you fold it back in and you serve it like that. And, it, and she talks about it having a sound called frou-frou. When it, when it goes into the pan in the fat, it goes frou-frou, <laughs> frou-frou, apparently. She's very, it. very clear about how to cook it. And I don't mm. know where my idea of not when my mum my, my was doing what she did, maybe that's because her, her mum did it. You know, her mum would have been around in like 1930, right. 40, just right. before this book was written. Um, I can't remember where my idea of not doing it, um, not fluffing up the whites came from. Maybe just because I wanted an omelette and I couldn't be bothered to fluff up the whites. Um, but I wondered <laughs> how you do omelettes. Um, well, so I, you see them both ways here. I've seen okay. the instructions for do the egg whites first and fold in the yolk. Um, I think that's probably considered the most proper way to do it. And then um, okay. as far as I know, the only way I've ever done it and the only way I've ever seen anybody personally do it is we just whisk the eggs completely, pour them into a pan. And then usually, are your omelets usually mm. stuffed? Like, do you usually have something in them? Yeah. Or is it just like yeah. an egg? Okay. Yeah, interestingly, yeah, so, so put she in, talks about yeah. she talks about cooking the filling first, putting it to one side, then cooking the omelette in the pan, and then taking it away from the heat and put it under the grill, which would be broiler for you, for a few seconds, oh. and then taking it out, putting it on the plate, putting the filling inside, and folding it over. Whereas I always put the filling oh. in it when it's in the pan, yeah, and then fold it over. That's how I always see it too. Yeah. No, I, actually, okay. I like the way that she said it. Sounds actually a little mm. bit nicer because you'd get more of those crispy edges. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, when Hannah's mom came out here um, for Christmas or mm. for like a Christmas sort of gathering, um, then, you know, she brought just a couple, maybe four of her kids with or something. <laughs> and then there was me and Gary and our three kids. And then there was Hannah and Jeremy and their little one. So there's a lot of us here. And 
she was up in the morning and had all the kids chopping things up and she was just she was just flinging omelets out of the kitchen. I was Gosh. just like standing there with my mouth wide open. And I was like, I told Hannah, your mom's such a professional mom. She's like so hardcore. But she was said, oh, I was going to make omelets. And she said, do you have an omelet pan? And I said, well, I only mm. have these cast irons. And she goes, mm. well, I've never tried it in cast iron, but I'll try it out. And so she did it. And mm-hmm. then, and I was like, you know, aren't omelets kind of tricky to flip over and get out of the pan and stuff like mm-hmm. that? Like, I think it took her one omelet and she had figured out the pan. And then she goes, yeah. oh, I think this is better than my pan. I'm going to start using cast iron at home too. Wow. I couldn't believe the pace that she was pumping them out. And they had, um, you know, she had, she had like thrown potatoes in the oven. And so she had Yum. all these cooked potatoes and she had um, sausage and bacon cooked and all these chopped veggies. I don't even know how she did it. I was just like so confused. Like what, wow. what is going on <laughs> in the kitchen we with need, no, you we know, need, no we counter. We need her to tell us her secrets. <laughs> Yeah, we do. Yeah, she's just whipping out these omelets. I've always found the, the cast iron pan really good for eggs in general, especially yeah. in an omelet. Yeah, me too. Absolutely fine. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Because it's so slick. Wow. wow. You know? That was a a very um, interesting foray into eggs. <laughs> I wasn't expecting yeah. to have to explain <laughs> about soldiers. Down. <laughs> well, the things we need to know. Um, it's so interesting that you... Um, got that book you told me about that book we've been talking mm. about it a little bit which it's is why good. we needed to talk about it on here and i think that you you would find this amusing that when i went down to see lexi uh, we didn't say anything to each other about you know exchanging gifts or anything but i showed up at her door with some canned food that i had made and um mm. cookbooks and then she had a canned food and a cookbook for me <laughs> and i just thought well that pretty much epitomizes our relationship yeah yeah. but i brought her the food in england book so oh i hope she likes um, it it's yeah um, so she'll be able to read it with us i i got it on um an ebook because that was the, the easiest okay. way for me it's to have huge. access to it straight away but i've also bought a paper copy now because oh, i cool. i know it's going to be on my sh- on my shelf and on my table for years to come i can tell yeah. so um yeah it 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 will be huge i think because i can see i'm only from my um, device here, I can see I'm only like a quarter of the way through it, perhaps. So I'm excited wow. about the chapters to through come. Through the Food in England book? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you've been reading it for a minute too. Dorothy Hartley wrote a lot of books. When yeah. I, well, not not like tons, but when I looked her up to find that book, I was like, wow, there's other yeah. ones out here. It's fascinating. Really, really fascinating. Yeah. And it's the best book on English food that, that I've read for sure. And I would really? like to be able to try to recreate some of the dishes as, you know, as time goes on and time allows mm-hmm. and I get back into not creating a sourdough course actually having some time <laughs> to play in the kitchen then hopefully I'll I'll be able to to make some of these and you'll um, just hit the rye chapter in food in England and you'll be stuck in rye again so, <laughs> no, so that I'm going to skip that chapter no. <laughs> uh, oh gosh okay well I think I think that's it from me I think okay. I'm. Um, I think I'm booked. <laughs> hey, and we chatted. Came in at an hour. Yeah, not bad. We're just over an hour, I think. Yeah, which is absolutely perfect. I think what's good is that you and I we would start out with our list of topics for the KTC, and then um, it would either go on too long or we wouldn't get to them. So now we put way less topics than we think we need, and it's always the right amount. Of yeah. Time, so. Yeah. Exactly. Four topics is enough. That's it. Wonderful. I can't wait for the oh. next one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank Anyways. you, Andrea. Bye for now. Okay. All right. Well, bye, Alison. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.